Welcome everybody to episode number 54 of the Average Jake Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Owens from the Average Jake Firefighter Blog. Hey everybody, thanks for being patient with me um, while there's been a big gap in between this podcast and the last one, um, but just have been so super, super busy, but all with great, great things, right? Like, uh, you know, kids have been wrestling, been busy at work, um, you know, just finished up the Fireground Commander Conference, uh, which was, I mean, by far the best conference that we've put on as a group. And and, and I'm only a very small part of it. I, I do help plan it and I help run it a little bit. But man, oh man, what a tremendous, tremendous just just experience this year uh, to get back in person, you know, not as many COVID restrictions, not as many restrictions on the venue, not as many restrictions for the speakers. We were able to get almost all 10 speakers uh, in that we originally planned on. We did get eight speakers in town, nine via Zoom with a last minute travel thing, but uh, already seeing the benefits of it uh, just recently. Uh, in, as part of the conference, uh, have gotten a lot of people reach out to me talking about how great the class was, how great the classes were, uh, specifically, right? I mean, probably, you know, the conference has been done for a week or two and, uh, we had a hoarding fire with people trapped in it. And a person who attended the conference reached out to, uh, Ben Martin, the guy who is the founder of the conference and the leader of the conference and said that, you know, Ryan Pennington's hoarding class made him so confident in operating in that environment that, uh, I mean that right there, if that's not victory enough, I don't know what is. Um, but man, it's just been a great, great, great experience. Again, sorry for the gap in podcasts. Um, you know, so let's not belabor the point anymore, though. Let's get to the topic of the day where we're going to be talking about what happens when the leadership loses the locker room and some suggestions for the big-time leaders like fire chiefs and county managers and, and leaders of the executive level and some suggestions for the company-level leadership, the small unit leadership, uh, coming right from the book uh, About Face and uh, all like, kind of inspired by the wake of this stuff in the NFL with John Gruden and Urban Meyer. So let's get to it. Firefighters, in my experience, are a lot like the Marines I've met over the years. No matter how badly led, ridiculously under-equipped, unappreciated, no matter how doomed their mission, they take a bizarre and quite beautiful pride in at least being screwed more than everybody else and doing it with style. They seem to do what they do for themselves. It's not a job, it's a calling. That's a quote by Anthony Bourdain, and it's talking about, you know, the the culture of firefighters. and, And, you know, I agree with most of it. I thought it was a really good quote to start the episode because this episode's gonna be about uh, what happens when the coach loses the locker room. And again, like I said in the intro, it was inspired by all this stuff that's happening uh, in the NFL and around the world uh, with leadership, right? Specifically, Urban Meyer and John Gruden. And we're going to focus a little more on Urban Meyer because, uh, well, one, he's still coaching. And I think that's where I really want to go with this because John Gruden was like immediately fired. And, and the background of this too, if, if, for those that don't know, uh, in, in my in my real life, not the firefighter life, not the podcast life, not the social media life, I'm an extremely huge sports fan. 
Uh, I, I mean, I, I follow every professional sports league, just about like the major ones. Uh, you know, I'm not much of an NBA fan, but I do follow it. I, I keep track of it, but major league baseball, uh, NHL, NFL, college football, college wrestling, college basketball, NBA. I, I, my son, my oldest son has even gotten into some soccer. So I've actually been paying attention uh, to like the English Premier League and the uh, Bundesliga, which I just like because it's fun to say. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's a joke. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, these there's extreme amount of correlation between the leadership that it takes to run these organizations and the performance that they need and the fire service, right? Like, and so that's where I was really, really interested in the whole Urban Meyer thing of how does he, after after violating the team's trust, after, you know, violating the team, the the players, the the fans, like, but he's still there. How does he recover from that? Like, what does he do? How does he navigate through that? And it leads me to, and I've just been doing a ton of research about it, and it leads me to uh, an article uh, from Fox News. And, and again, don't, don't, uh, don't, uh, you know, get wrapped around the axle about the news source or, or, you know, where you get the article from. Just like, I'm a big believer in just like kind of reading all sorts of articles from all sorts of people and places and, and then forming my own opinion, right? So, but this was probably one of the better articles on this subject. It starts, Jackson Jaguar, Jacksonville Jaguars coach Urban Meyer does not appear to be off the hook from the viral video he was seen in earlier this month after he opted to stay in Ohio instead of travel back with his team following a loss in a Thursday night game to the Cincinnati Bengals. Jaguars owner Shad Khan tasked Meyer with earning the trust back of the organization, but a new report said the former college football coach never had the locker room in the first place. The Athletic reported as much on Thursday, citing sources, several sources close to the players. So that right there, we'll stop, we'll stop right there with, I mean, insane, right? Like, you know, if you know anything about Urban Meyer, know anything about coaching, he's had several stops. He was a uh, coach at Florida, coach at Ohio State. I mean, super, super successful college coach. There was even talks about, even though he's coaching for the Jaguars now, that the USC job and LSU jobs are going to be open, that he could end up there, right? Like, he could leave the NFL and go back to college. So, I mean, it, it just, it, it's it's baffling, right, with a guy that's so much success, um, and, and there's been some stuff in the background, right, that maybe some shady stuff in the background before this happened, but a guy who has been able to overcome all of that and be so successful that he never had the locker room in the first place. And the article continues, according to the report, Meyer's coaching style hasn't meshed with the veterans in the locker room, as it may have uh, at the collegiate level with younger players. Meyer's situation was the talk of the NFL before John Gruden's emails were exposed. Wall Street Journal, New York Times last week, Meyer hasn't helped his job security much. He and the Jaguars lost to the Tennessee Titans and bring an 0-5 an record over to London against the Miami Dolphins. This is a couple weeks ago. Um, again, according to Pro Football Talk, the Meyer situation's far from over. The report speculated that Meyer's future as a head coach could depend on whether his statement about letting general manager... Trent Ballack know in advance that he was going to stay behind in Ohio was truthful. Pro Football Talk reported the players and staff didn't know Meyer was traveling back until they were on the plane ride home. And that right there shows up like some extreme red flags right there, right? Um, And it's some things that 
I know in fire departments all over the country and whatever, uh, whatever you do that credibility and communication are key when you're dealing with your, when you're dealing with the people that work for you, players, whatever. Um, if, and style, right? It really is all about style. You, in, in these leadership positions, and uh, it's something that Stanley McChrystal talks about in the book Leaders, where he takes people from all walks of uh, like business and, and sports and all this stuff, and he analyzes what made them successful and what was some of their downfalls. And one of the things he continues to come back to, especially when he talks about leaders in the entertainment industry like Walt Disney, was how charismatic they were, how uh, their style just seemed to just make people want to work for, whether they were the smartest person in the room or not. Um, I have had the experience of being around several leaders, and while they may have been very smart, they were very robotic. And I think the old adage remains true is no one cares what you know unless they know how much you care. And that seems to me, especially as we've become more of a corporate entity in the fire service, which I hate that, that we've become that, but we've become such a corporate, you know, we, we've, we've privatized some things. We're treating our service as more of a business. And I think in certain aspects, that's okay, but not when it comes to the real mission of taking care of people and putting out fires and saving property and, and all of that stuff, right? Like at the street level, you cannot have that corporate mentality, especially the people who choose this job, choose to, and, and it's a lot of the time, and not even necessarily the guys that promote, but the people that never want to be that executive level leader, right? They're blue collar people. Look at politics today, right? Look at politics. Look at the people uh, that are that are in our leadership roles in, in government, there's a large contingent of people in the United States that are rebelling against these so-called white-collar leaders, right? And people that have been successful in these recent elections, I know here in my home state of Virginia, are down-to-earth people, right? They Or they at least appear to be, right? They're appealing to the blue-collar worker. The, the, and, and to be quite honest, even with the, the technology being what it is and, 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 and our, we're moving more toward that area, blue-collar work is still what it takes to get things done in America. Blue-collar work is definitely what it takes to get things done in the fire service. There's never been a spreadsheet invented that pulled a hose line, right? That pulled a hose line and saved somebody. That's all blue, dirty, blue-collar work, okay? And you got to get your hands dirty. So people who enjoy that and got in the fire service or the police service or EMS service or whatever, to do those things, they don't really appreciate uh, administrative folks, right? Like, at least not when the administrative folks act like this is a corporation and not a fire department. Um, and I see that all over the country and I'm not talking about, and I have to put this disclaimer out there because every time I talk about something like this, people think I'm talking about someone specific in my fire department, or this is a specific thing in my fire department. Uh, I'm telling you straight up that, uh, while do I see some of these things in my fire department? Yes. I think they're all over the country. I travel a lot. I speak to a lot of people. I interact with a lot of people. And these are things that people tell me all over the place right? These are not just 
in the fire department that I work for, or this isn't specifically about someone in the fire department I work for. So if you're listening from our, from the fire department that I work for, then please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. This is a global problem that's going on. And this is not about anything or anyone specific. This is a global fire service problem. So anyway, back to the article. Um, back to the article a little bit. The other, uh, the other thing that, uh, the other scenario that could cost Urban Meyer his job is the other factors leading up to the bar incident. Meyer hired former Iowa coach Chris Doyle amid accusations of Doyle making racist comments. It was alleged Meyer was taking vaccination status into account when making roster cut decisions, and he lost the first few games of the season. So that right there, we're talking about two politically charged things that happen uh, with Urban Meyer, and the guy just can't seems just seems to be following like bad leadership mantra, not communicating with his players, not communicating with his bosses, because everybody's got a boss. Don't care who you are. Uh, President of the United States has a boss. Everybody's got a boss. So not communicating with the bosses, not communicating your vision appropriately, hiring people that aren't trustworthy or don't have the trust of the players in the organization. Uh, I know that's happened in other fire departments out there. Uh, It's happened in my fire department where people have been promoted to positions where they were untrustworthy, right? Like they did not have the support of the of the people that were working for the fire department. I know it's happened in other fire departments, right? Like so when that happens, you automatically are putting yourself behind the eight ball. You're putting yourself in a bad situation. And so it it is it starts to become impossible for you to uh <laughs> for you to even, you know, make headway in the organization. Uh, because the organization doesn't have trust. And I know I've talked about this in the past. I hate using the word organization, but we're talking about global things, right? We're talking about uh, we're talking about just like massive, massive changes and massive leadership shortfalls in the fire service, in EMS, in police, in public safety, in government. And uh, what better place to provide some insight and some suggestions into that than about face. I just recently finished about face. It's 800 and so pages and it takes a long time to read, but I'm telling you they've just re-released it. Uh, you can get it on thrift books for pretty cheap, but they've just started to re-release it with a new forward in the book by Jocko Willink. And it is tremendous. It is a tremendous, it is by far the best leadership book that I've ever read. And uh, I'm going to highlight some things, especially these are all going to be from the epilogue of the book. It's the very, very, very end of the book. And just the background on David Hackworth, right? Like he was Mr. Infantry. He was, in fact, I'm pretty sure he was a lot of you out there. He was Mr. Army. He lied about his age to get into the army. He lied about his age so that he could get into the army. Then he lied about his age again, right? So that he could stay in the army. Right, this guy wanted to be in the army and be in the military so bad that he continued to lie, so that he could be a part of it. He was ate up with it. He was called Mister Infantry. His whole life was to be an infantry commander. That's all he wanted. He even he bypassed educational opportunities so that he could go, so that he could stay in Vietnam. Right, he was supposed to, he was committed all the way to full bird colonel not lieutenant colonel, he was a full colonel in the army, and he was 
set up to go to the Army War College, which would have been a guaranteed, if he'd have finished Army War College, he'd have been at least a one-star general. Probably more, right? He would have definitely been a one-star general, but he got so disenchanted with the poor leadership. He had a way that he thought we should be fighting the war. He went and interviewed people as part of uh, SLA Marshall's uh, interview process for Vietnam. He wrote a book called The Vietnam Primer, before he ever wrote about Faced and some of his other books that detailed how we could win the war in Vietnam. How fighting and the fighting style and the tactics and the strategy that we needed to use. He wrote a book about it. He was the foremost expert on infantry. So much so that like at the end of his career, well, he didn't know it was the end of his career at the time, but at the end of his career, he was a liaison for... Uh, the uh, regular Vietnamese army and so that they could uh, so that they could try to like you know take over for themselves right like he was advising them on how to how to be better soldiers so that they could continue to fight the North Vietnamese and so this guy was ate up with being in the army and when I read about David Hackworth I read so I feel like it's me but a later time right and and with the fire service how he feels about the army is how I feel about the fire service and like similar ages too, right? Like, I mean, he got in the army when he was like 15, 16 years old, right? And I get did the same thing in the fire service. And so as I read about face, I've just seen so many similarities between the shortfalls in the fire service and the shortfalls. And so when that coach loses the locker room, you have only a couple, you know, and, and so relatable, right? So, and to him, the coach lost the locker room. The generals and the people commanding the armies in the Vietnam lost the locker room. They lost the soldiers. They went about recruiting, retention, everything, just the complete wrong way. And they lost the trust of, really, the, they lost the trust of the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers. And that really was, that's the backbone of the military. It really is. The NCOs would be like the senior man in the firehouse. And if you lose the senior man, you know your firehouse is doomed. You know, as a lieutenant or a captain, if the senior man's gone, there's really no turning back, right? And so, as I've read about Face, and we're going to get into that epilogue chapter here in a second, but as I read about Face, I've come to the conclusion that when the coach loses the locker rooms, and I've done my research on sports teams and, and, and sports history and all this stuff, there's really two options that the team has and that they really have to act on when the coach loses the locker room. The first option is to wait for a change. I see a lot of teams, a lot of fire departments, a lot of fire houses, a lot of, you know, like take it as far down as you want to. And they have bad leadership. They essentially stop progressing, stop working, and they wait for someone to make a change. That's either they hire a new fire chief or they hire a new county manager or they hire a new deputy chief or they hire or, or as a the company level, they get rid of the lieutenant and they wait for a new lieutenant or a new captain, right? They just basically wait for that change to get that, to get the next leader to see if he's better, to feel inspired so that they can continue to do their work. That's option one. And I see a lot of places do that, but then you see the teams or the fire departments, or the organizations, that even with bad leadership, they choose to win anyway. 
going back to that Anthony Bourdain quote, right? Like, no matter how understaffed, how uh, underappreciated, all those things, they decide to win anyway. And so that's what I hope a majority of us are doing out there. If you feel like your leader's bad, if you feel like your organization is bad, if you feel like your government is bad, any of that, right? Like anything. And it can be as small as your as, as your company. It can be as small as your team inside your, your corporate organization. It can be as large as the entire organization or fire department itself. I hope that we're choosing to win anyway. And here's some things as we get into the epilogue chapter, that can highlight some things that we can do and some pitfalls for your leadership, for leaders out there and how to avoid them, right? And some of this comes from, uh, and a lot, and all of this comes from about face, right? And so we'll read the book and then we'll, we'll give the personal spin on it because that's what we're doing here in the podcast, right? Like it's things that inspire me that hopefully inspire you to make these changes. So we'll start with, uh, with uh, just uh, on page 816 and about face, and this is in the epilogue part of the uh, part of it, right? World War II and the trouncing of Germany and Japan and the first seeds of national self-doubt took root. In the military, the Korea result was even more profound. Never had American arms performed so badly in a time of Claire Blair's book catalogs, the remarkable failings in training, logistics support and leadership, men arrived in Korea in the summer of 1950 who had never fired their weapons. M24 tanks whose 75mm guns had not been fired because their units hadn't received the recoil oil that they had on order for two years. Led to the tanks' turrets being blown off, uh, blown off vehicles when the guns were fired for the first time. Battalion, regiment, and division commanders arrived too old for the job, whose inappropriate tactics led to the misuse and sacrifice, often in sheer bloodbaths, of the green garrison units at their disposal. And so that was a little bit choppy, but for for what they're really saying is, is that people were unprepared for the job that they really had to do. They were unprepared in leadership roles. They were unprepared in... They were unprepared in uh, just basic infantry roles, right? They were unprepared logistically. And so that right there is a big thing for you big organizational leaders and even your small unit leaders, right? Training, 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 training. Preparation, okay? Preparation and training. It matters. Put the right people in the right places, even if you don't like them. And we'll get into that a little bit more with another quote in this book. But even if you don't like them, if they're the right person for the job, put them in there. If they're the right person for the job, put them in there. Okay, Make sure that, they, that they're getting the proper training. And make sure when we're onboarding our people, right? Like that's one of the biggest things I've seen out there is people complain about all these new recruits. They need to be prepared for the job we're really going to be doing. Guess what? It ain't all dragon hose. I, I hate that, right? Like, I hate it. But 90% of what we're doing out there these days is EMS runs. They need to be prepared for that. I see so many people get in the fire service and they get into their firehouse and they're thinking they're going to go to fires every day and they drive the ambulance and they go on EMS calls and they pick up old people and they get disenchanted with it and they leave in five years or less. We're seeing mass amounts of exodus of firefighters all over the country. A friend of mine who had been in the fire service since he was in high school. His dream was to be in the fire service. 
been in the fire, volunteered in high school, uh, came, uh, you know, got out of high school, got hired as a career firefighter, got promoted. He left the fire service. He left it to go work in corporate America because the fire service wasn't living up to his expectation of what he really thought the job was going to do. And I really think that that was a failing in leadership. They even say it, right? Like people don't leave bad jobs. They leave bad bosses. And I really think that that's one of the things that contributed to it. Sure, maybe he was tired of riding the ambulance. Maybe he was burnt out. But maybe if we had onboarded people appropriately, maybe if we'd given an appropriate expectation, maybe he wouldn't have left it. Back to the book here. The result was the military learned nothing from the Korean experience, only to carry the same non-lessons into the next war and blow it all over again. And Vietnam was all the more humiliating for being exposed on the 6 o'clock news every night. But when that war was over, while the first instinct on the part of generals who managed it was to file it like Korea under O for oblivion, instead, the last few years, it has become clear that another tack has been taken. Now the war managers are working overtime to rewrite the truth of what happened in that war. A score, of year, a score of years later, retired three-star general Robert Schweitzer's suggestion, made as a light colonel in 1968, that the Army must lead the way in conducting a PSYOPs campaign that American arms accomplished their mission in Vietnam has, has become an unwritten but vigorously maintained policy. I mean, come on. That right there tells you everything you shouldn't do as a leader, Right? One, you should be learning lessons from things. We should be we should be breaking down tactics. And this is more of a company-level leadership, right? But then if we fail, we need to be open and honest about our failures. We need to be open and honest that we didn't do things right. We need to be open and honest. And then we need to take those lessons and not hide them. We need to share them so that people don't repeat the mistakes. There needs to be, uh, you know honest conversations about what we're capable of, who, who the best people are to put in these jobs, and what happens as a leader. And don't, this will cause you to lose the locker room so fast if you get caught in a lie, right? If you get caught in a lie about what happened in an operation, I mean, come on. That's insane, right? That's truly, truly insane. You know you're not going to keep your locker room. You know, you, like, once you lose trust, it's over at any level. You might as well pack up and go home. Because if no one can trust you, if they don't feel they can trust you, then then what's it all about, right? then you're never going to make any headway. You're never going to make any headway. So back to the book. The people running the army today were the majors and lieutenant colonels in Vietnam. Many ticket-punched their way through Vietnam, learning little from their experience except the wrong way to fight. In the 70s and early 80s, they did not want to look back and learn as Hank Lundy, who in 1985, then recently retired after a professorship at the Army War College, reported, for two years, the voluntary elective on Vietnam at the Army War College had to be canceled because a minimum of four students did not sign up. It was not until the instructor, Colonel Harry Summers, published his book that enough students became interested to make it a go. In the meantime, the touch-and-feel computer classes and management theory and philosophy classes were so oversubscribed that some had to move to large auditorium. Wow. I mean, that right there, if that doesn't 
talk about how a fire service thing, about how the fire service is today or the direction we're heading, it's insane, right? You see people, one, they're getting the minimum amount of operational time that they need in order to ticket punch their way into executive leadership positions, right? What that does for you, it hurts you with the troops on the ground. If they don't think that you can be in a fire, be in a fire, be in command of a fire, or pull a hose line, like they're never going to trust you. They're never going to trust the decisions you make, especially if you eventually rotate back out to the field and end up being a battalion chief or a division commander or or whatever. Same thing in business, right? If you, and I'm not saying you have to had to have done every job on your way up the ladder, right? But if you're not well-rounded in at least operations, you're not going to gain any trust. You're not going to gain any trust there, right? Like in, in, in the operational side of things is where people are dying, where people are getting killed. The decisions you're making are literally life and death for citizens and for firefighters. So it takes a ton of trust. And if you were just this flash in the pan, spent a minute as a as a company officer and then became a chief or you know spent a minute as a team leader and now became a, an executive vice president, man, like you're not going to have the trust of your troops. You're not going to have the trust of the people that are working for you. You're not going to have the trust of the people who uh, who 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 are carrying out your real mission especially in the fire service. Our real mission is to protect life, save property, right? And those are life and death decisions. You have to send some, I'm, I, you know, I've heard people say this about people uh, that I wouldn't, if that guy told me to VES a window, I wouldn't do it because I don't trust his grasp to know what that really means. Wow. So that's putting lives in danger because they don't feel that you have the tactical knowledge to make sound decisions, and that happens everywhere. And, that, and then we're talking about in business, we're talking about in the fire service, police service, everything, right? If you haven't at least spent a, a majority of your time, man, you're losing, you know, and also if, if you're that person, they don't think that you have their best interests at heart because I hear this comment all the time was, why do you think they want us to do that? It's because they've never had to do it themselves, right? Like you hear people t- complain about, well, you know, this unit isn't that busy or, you know, or something like that. Like I've heard that from executive level people at all over the country. Right. And, and then you start to think about their background and they've never been at that busy unit. They don't know the deal. They don't know how, how it is. Right. So, I mean, it, it's tough and, and you're not going to get those people to be behind you. Uh, you're not going to get those people to be behind you when it really, when it really matters. And so then we uh, he he gets back to the book here, and we're talking about Grenada, and uh, and this is even a more to illustrate what we're talking about. The the CG eighty second Airborne during the Grenada operation, for example, left the division before the end of his normal tour. And while evidence does indeed point to the, his units not being up for the Car- Car- Caribbean game, his abrupt reassignment which from this soldier's perspective can only be read as relief of command, evades the real question of who put him in the slot in the first place. Historically, this position has gone to a real fighter and longtime paratrooper. Trobal had no airborne experience at all, yet he was given command of the number one ready force in the U.S. Army. Interestingly, a colonel who served in the 82nd with Trobal told me the very reason this general was assigned to the division was to shake up the airborne clique and he did it by bringing he did and apparently he did 
bring many needed changes to the 82nd, but was unable to make a dent in the entrenched half-century-old Airborne Brotherhood. According to the Colonel, as well as the 82nd's plotting performance in Grenada and the awards giveaway program that followed, it was Trobol's running battle with the Airborne Club that brought him down. That right there. One, this guy had no experience in the Airborne, yet he was in command of an Airborne unit. How are you going to get trust? How are you going to lead those people? That's the same thing I argument I hear for these people that say that someone to be a good fire chief doesn't have necessarily had to have been a good firefighter. And you're right. They don't necessarily have to have been a good firefighter, but they had to have been one, right? In order to be a good fire chief, you can't just be this executive person. You can't have spent a year on an engine company, a year on a truck company, a year as a, a, a lieutenant captain of battalion and think you understand what it takes to run the fire department, at least not from the guys on the, on the ground, at least not from the troop level. You're never going to gain their trust. They're never going to believe a thing you say. And they're going to think that all you wanted to do was skyrocket to the top. And that's essentially what you did. That's essentially what you did. And everybody's got a ceiling. I'm not, uh, and everybody's got a purpose. Not everybody can and not everybody should be the fire chief. Not everybody can and everybody should be a lieutenant or a captain or a battalion or, or, or an assistant chief or uh, executive vice president or the police chief or, uh, you know, anything, right? Like even down to a construction, not everybody on the job site drives the backhoe, okay? But if you're going to be the leader, the leader, the top dog, you got to have a little bit of experience in each one of those little places, right? You had to have done some of those dirty jobs. So to be in charge of a of an airborne company and to not have been an airborne guy, how how how's that possible, right? Like, and one exactly, who put him in that position in the first place? So you guys out there that are making promotions and making decisions, really, really, really pay attention to what the background is of these people. Really, really pay attention. Like, if you're going to put somebody in charge of a specialty team, right? Like if your fire department has a hazmat team and you're going to put a guy in charge of the hazmat team that's never done hazmat. It's not a hazmat tech. Is that smart? No. One, automatically, right off the bat, you've lost trust with the people that have been on the hazmat team. You've already lost their trust. You did, you, you've you barely made the promotion. The ink's not even dry. The guy's gold bars are still shiny and he's already and he's already lost trust. And that's not his fault. That's your fault. That's your fault. So it's insane to me that people would just continue to, to make these things happen. And it's insane to me that people would accept that job, right? I mean, you know, I've been asked to do some things in my career that I wasn't qualified for. And I told them so. I told them I would do the very best job that I could do, but this would not be successful for them or me because I was not qualified to take that position. I was not qualified to take that role. And that's okay. And that's for you small unit leaders. It's okay to say no, especially in one of those situations. Don't put yourself in that position just to punch your ticket and get to the next level, right? That's not worth it. I'm telling you it's not worth it. And so then this gets to uh, how we can really like, how we can how we can change some of those things, right? And uh, uh, one of the things really too, and this is a suggestion for, for fire chiefs and people who do awards, and more at stake than decorations, too, in what could only be seen as a continued debasement of an award system already thoroughly prostituted in Vietnam for the Grenada operation, which was only like a couple days long. 
8,612 medals, almost 200 for bravery, were awarded when there were no more than 7,000 U.S. personnel on the Tylee Island at any time during the three days of sputtering combat against a few Cuban troops. You want to build pride? You want to build, uh, make your awards mean something? Make it when you give that person a certificate, uh, a medal, or whatever. You want to make it mean, then make it mean something. Like, this is ridiculous, right? This is a prostituted system. It means nothing. It means nothing. And for and by and far, too, a lot of people who are really in this job for the right reasons don't like them anyway. Uh, I hate award ceremonies, right? Like, I hate them. I was given a Firefighter of the Year award from a local civic group, and I don't hang that award up, right? Like, that award is, it's in my basement. I was given a unit commendation for, uh, you know, our unit pulled out a couple people out of a fire. They ended up passing away. But I don't hang that award up. I hate that. I don't do this for awards. I don't, I, you know... I nominate people for awards because I like to see good work done, but I hate getting them myself. I hate going to award ceremonies. I hate all that stuff. And I and and I I just hate it. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. I don't like getting those things like that. But there's some people but but if you're going to do it, this is a, you know, for anybody who gives awards out there, businesses, fire chiefs, police departments, military Make them actually mean something. Make them actually hard to get. Make them. Uh, we talked about this when we talked uh, about twenty thousand alarms. That it was such that the the awards process was so scrutinized that man, when people got awards in the FDNY on Medal Day, that's why it's such a big deal still. Medal Day in the FDNY. They're so hard to get and they're so scrutinized that they mean something. If you get that, I believe it's still the James uh, Gordon Bennett Medal. Man, that means something. Gosh, that means that means everything to some of these guys to get that medal. So if you're gonna do that, and you want to build pride, ownership, and and things in your department. Make them actually mean something. Make them don't make it so that everybody gets an award, or like it's almost like participation trophies. So back to the book. There's a big difference between bravery and good management. When a warrior risks his life and is awarded a medal, a commander slash manager must not get that same medal for fighting his unit well or for just being there. Instead, there should be a Combat Commander's Award, which would recognize a CO's job well done without making a joke of the combat awards that real fighters should have the right to wear as a badge of honor. So that right there, again, continues. And it's it's a suggestion for people. Um, You know, it's a suggestion for you fire chiefs out there. And this is getting into uh, more, again, back in the book, this is getting into more uh, how we can fix it, right? How we can fix it, how we can make our fire service better, how you can make your organization better, right? And this, and it talks about, it talks about, um, you know, it's a military focus, but you can adapt it to your organization. You can adapt it to your fire department, your company, your police department, your, your business or whatever. And then back to the book, absolute necessity for hard realistic training, strong, caring, tactically proficient leaders, and reliable GI-proof weapons with inexpensive munitions so soldiers can actually fire them in training rather than practice on a penny arcade simulator if the Army's goal is to be combat-ready and capable defending the United States. Um, I think that is that is meaningful across all sorts of public safety, business, whatever, right? You need to train the people appropriately. 
what is your mission and train them for it, right? I know for my fire department, we, as much as I hate to say this, we probably need better, we don't need better uh, protocols, right? Or we don't need, we need better training. We need better EMS training, right? Because that's where our battle is really being fought. I wish I was going to 400 fires a year, but we're not. We're just not. And I think it's important not to lose that skill, right? Like, but we have to find a way to better prepare people for the EMS call load, the EMS call load for service. Um, and I think that's probably a nationwide problem, right? We need to expand our EMS simulations. We need to expand, uh, like our, our, you know, the opportunity to perform these skills. I know one of the biggest problems in my fire department is our innovation, first pass innovation success rate. And the problem is, is that we don't innovate very many people, right? And there's, you know, 200 or 300, there's about 200 ALS providers. So if you break down the amount of innovations we do versus the how many providers there are, you might get an innovation a year, maybe. I've, I've already done one this year, and, I, and I, I've already done one this year, so I probably won't get to do another one. Uh, you know, the year's almost over. So I'm waiting to next year to probably get my next innovation. And But our, our big thing is like, we just don't have the opportunity with so many other competing priorities, so many other things going on out there that we don't have the opportunity to actually practice it and do it well. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, it's hard to do, right? You the, Even the mannequin, the mannequin is not a great training tool. It, it can, it's like a forcible entry door, right? It can let you go through the motions, but in reality, it doesn't react like a real person, a real airway. Even when the people put the puke in it, right? It still doesn't react real, right? Like it just doesn't. It doesn't flop around as much. The head's rigid, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just doesn't. Just it just doesn't simulate realness, right? You can get your emotions down, just like a real, just like a forcible entry door. It's meant to be used over and over and over again. It's not the best way to train people on how to real force entry on a real door. It's more for to get the cadence down, to get everything going in the right direction. And then, so we get back to the book here. Training for war must be realistic at all costs. We can't just discontinue a curriculum when something bad happens, provided that something is not the result of misconduct on the parts of sadistic or unqualified instructors. Training casualties, tragic as they may be, must be accepted as an occupational hazard in the tough and dangerous business of soldiering. The emphasis on safety at the expense of realism may keep Congress and Miss Lump Lump at bay, but it sets up the soldiers it presumably is protecting for failure by stunting their growth and inhibiting their confidence in themselves and their supporting weapons. It's like a fledgling football team learning, learning blocking and tackling by sitting in a room watching videotapes. It is unimaginable that these men would be sent into their first game against seasoned competitors with such training only have, uh, which only could only have them feeling alien and removed from the basics when must be second nature in order to survive, much less win. Wow, I mean that right there is, if that isn't the current, if that isn't the current state of fire service training in our country, uh, I don't know what is. And so, if you're listening out there, fire chiefs, safety officers, police, like we need realistic training. The stakes are, have never been higher because fires are burning at a, uh, you know, they're not burning hotter, but they're burning faster. They're reaching their maximum output of, of energy, uh, their heat release rate and their G and their BTU production faster than ever. So we need 
training fires and equipment that can stand up to that and that can stand up to the, the scrutiny that we're going to be under in the, on the fire ground and the danger we're going to be in in the fire ground. And that ain't a burn building. That's not even true. We, we need to get back to where we're fighting training fires in real houses under real conditions where, yeah, people could get hurt. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. We need gear that stands up to these heat release rate, even if it's uncomfortable. It needs to be reliable. And we need leadership that believes in that. I can tell you right now, you want to win your fire department locker room? Get an acquired structure burn. I know it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot, and it and it is a risk. It is a huge risk. But what is the uh, what is the the opposite of that risk? What's the opposite of that risk? I can tell you. And this is this is a fire department. This is a my fire department thing. Every time we find a house and we we're not allowed to train in it, we lose a little bit of the locker room. We lose a little bit of the locker room. I'm telling you, it's just from personal experience. Every time that you find this house and, and, and it might have something wrong with it, right? Like it really might. And it might be the best decision that needs to take place in order uh, to keep everybody safe, right? Like, I mean, I've even stopped things in training for safety issues, right? Like, and I get that. We're not trying to get anybody hurt or killed or whatever. But I can tell you that only training in these unrealistic environments is not only going to be bad for the, your your leadership, bad for your locker room, it's going to be bad for the citizens because you're not exposing people to the real conditions of what it really is out there when we're fighting. You're not exposing them to it. Soldiers can discover for themselves that war is not a series of canned problems with a limited range of responses, but a human encounter where the unexpected always happens and flexibility is key. If that's not a better descriptor of the fire ground, I don't know what is. So we need that to happen, right? And a lot of the people that are pushing for these things, they're, they're branded by their organization as mavericks or rogues or, or whatever, right? Like, we really need to keep those people in place, right? Like, even if they're never going to be the fire chief, we need to keep those people in place. One, because guess what? The people that, that are working for you actually trust them. They trust them because they know they've been there. Even if they're brash. I know plenty of people who I don't want to go have a beer with, but I want to go to every fire with because they're experienced. They know their job. And I know they're going to keep me safe. They're going to save people and they're going to do their stuff. But they're probably the most, they're, they're probably not, they're really like, their personalities are a little bit brash. I probably even fit into that category for some people. Uh, you know, their personalities are brash. Like they're not, they're not people I want to hang out with. They're just not, I don't want to hang out with them, but I want to go to fires with them because they know their job. Back to the book. After all, Lee Iacocca, management hero of the eighties has the keeping of Mavericks around as one of his eight commandments of good management. Today's army bureaucrats would do well to look at Iacocca's example and if not nurture the Mavericks, then at least maintain them in the system in troop leading positions, which the managers are not interested in, except as a ticket punching exercise in the first place. So that right there, that's why you need those people that only want to do operations, right? They may never get to the fire chief level, or they may never get to the lieutenant colonel level in a police department or the executive vice president level, but they want to be in the trenches. They want to be where the action is. They want to, and guess what? They're experts at it. The people trust them. And when you try to make them something that they're not or something they're not interested in, you lose their trust. You lose the trust of the people. You lose all sorts of people. Like You just lose your locker room. You continue to lose your locker room. 
Um, this is another thing too, uh, and this is something that I see happening all over the country, right? And this is about how we're promoting people and how we're picking up and how we're picking si- uh, who who the leaders are and, and how we're getting them there, right? And this is another thing too. Find a way to get people in leadership roles that don't necessarily have master's degrees, bachelor's degrees, and doctorates, right? Like some of the best company officers out there are high school educated, or they may have an education in the trades, or they may just have an associate's degree, right? Like not everybody needs, and, and I'm of the of, of the opinion that you don't need a bachelor's degree to be a battalion chief or to be a, a person who is leading in, in operations, right? You need a master's degree in the fire service, you need a master's degree in fireground operations. Back to the book. Both soldiers and taxpayers are being shortchanged by what has been a gradual but significant transformation of the United States Military Academy from producer of fighter leaders to manufacturer of corporate whiz kids. West Point's academic requirements today make it one of the hardest schools in the nation to get into. To many, this is a state of affairs in which to take great pride. But to a real soldier or to anyone who recognizes you don't have to be an academic genius to be a solid combat commander, it's a serious case of mistaken priorities. Further, with a West Point education, an excellent stepping stone to a high-paying job in the civilian world, far too many USMA alumni go through the motions for five years at their appointments, require them, and then opt for the bucks without looking back. That's what's happening in our fire service right now. When you have a doctorate or a master's degree and you're making $80,000 a year, why wouldn't you go to corporate America and make more? And we're seeing it. We're seeing that happen with people that aren't, that don't have that. We're seeing that happen with people that came from other trades, found out the fire service isn't what they thought it was going to be and leave. And it happens all the time. And a lot of that, it discourages some of the, the, the true fire service combat leaders from aspiring for promotion, right? Because they don't, they'd rather just go make money on their part time, right? Or they're tired of these guys that have never worked a day in a firehouse or worked very minimal times in the firehouse. They're tired of them getting getting in these spots and not being able to trust them and not taking the you know the, the job or the mission seriously, the real mission, the life saving and the property conservation and all those things, not taking it seriously. And that's where you're losing your locker room by requiring all these ridiculous educational requirements and not requiring technical knowledge. And this is a thing all over the country, right? We promote people based on a written test in a simulated assessment center. Not usually based on what they've really done. Anybody can pass those tests. I'm not very smart and I've been able to do them. I've been able to pass them twice. I've been able to pass those tests twice and get promoted. And I'm not very smart. I can tell you that in the grand scheme of things, if you're putting intelligence on a scale, I'm not very smart. Not good at math. I'm not very good at English. Uh, In order to do this podcast, it's the most basic podcast setup. You'd laugh at me if you saw the podcast setup that I have. But I've been able to, to get past those tests and get promoted twice. So come on. Like, Let's make our promotional processes realistic. Let's make let's go looking for the people. And it's okay if there's a person that you're going to promote and everybody has their ceiling. We talked about that earlier. It's okay if that person you're going to promote is only ever going to be a lieutenant. It's okay. That's okay. 
they'll probably be the best lieutenant you've ever had. They're going to be happy being a lieutenant. They're going to be happy being a lieutenant. Not everybody needs to, to punch the promotional ladder. Not everybody should. Colonel Ken Eggleston, back to the book, has suggested that a man should not be allowed to become an officer without three years of enlisted service first. At the very least, General Hank Emerson believes the age limit to answer the point should be raised to allow more mature, experience-rich EM a shot at the officer world. The value of such is a move is obvious. These students would already have demonstrated leadership ability, they would already know the Army and love it, and they wouldn't quit. They'd stay in, make a life of it, make it better. If the U.S. Military Academy can take the remarkable step of admitting women, surely it can begin to look at the Army's ranks for its combat leaders in the future. And man, if that's not where we need to head as a fire service, then I, I don't know. Um, <coughs> I mean, that that's where we need to be heading. Talk about keeping your locker room engaged uh, and, 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 you know, and not wanting to lose them. That right there, if we could revamp the promotional processes and get some of the people who fear it, get some of the people with test anxiety, promote them on their merit. And I believe I talked about this. In, uh, I read this, actually. I didn't talk about it. Maybe I did talk about it on the episode. But in John Norman's book, in John Norman's book, his new book, Working with Giants, he talks about how the promotional processes in New York, yes, there's a written test, but you're also promoted on merit. What companies you've served in, what, you know, if you've been awarded any acts of, of heroism or bravery, anything like that. Like your resume, not just your classes that you've taken, the resume of your of your performance, your opera, and not just what some lieutenant uh, or, or some uh, boss wrote about you. A true look at your performance. Like, what fires have you been in command of? What fires did you perform well at? All of those things factor into getting a promotion in the FDNY. We could easily do that in the fire service. You could easily do that in the police department, businesses, all those types of things, right? Like, we would, you know, and even in the past, even in the military, the military has still done this. They, uh, if you've watched Band of Brothers, right? Like, uh, a second lieutenant, Dick Winters, ended up going all the way to being a major uh, in there because he had so much experience, right? Right after D-Day and all this stuff, he had so much experience. They they had to promote him into those levels because he was one of the, with only he was one of the only ones with true combat experience, right? He he led troops in combat, and so he knew how to lead troops in combat. So they had to get him in a leadership role so that he could make those decisions that would keep people alive and have combat success. Talking about another thing, you want to keep your locker room? It's a strange thing how systems proved to be second or third rate are defended so vigorously, even as a matter of our nation's survival by men who should know better. This comes down to taking feedback, listening to uh, you know your subordinates, all those things. Just because it came out of your mouth doesn't mean it's golden. Just because you think it's the greatest idea... People who might shoot holes in it, listen. Even if you're not going to change it, at least listen, right? But if it becomes clear that the idea is not good, it becomes dear that it's not a great thing, then man, just just put it away, right? Put it away. Change it. Have the courage to say it wasn't a good decision. Have the courage to change. I know one of the examples I've used for this, right? Like I, This is maybe unpopular, right? Like When I first was exposed to the scorpion load, I hated it. God, I hated it. 
Okay, I hated it. I wanted to change the load so bad. I like I got to this new firehouse and they were running it, and I hated it. I just I hated it, and I wanted to change it. I wanted to change it to what I liked. I wanted to change it, but I was the only person in the firehouse that wanted to change that hose load. Right? I was the only now, and I was the highest ranking person. It's, it was when we had firehouse captains. Um, and I was the captain of this firehouse, the three lieutenants and all the firefighters. Like I, I'm their boss right now. I have a boss. I have a battalion that I report to, but this firehouse and matters to this firehouse and matters to that fire engine and things like that. I'm the, I'm the say, but I was the only one that wanted to change. Now I could have flashed the badge, flashed the collar brass and said, Nope, we're changing it because I want to change it. But all other people in that firehouse, all other, all 20 other people in that firehouse loved it. They wanted to keep it. So what did we do? We kept it. And what did that do? That won me favor, right? I wasn't doing it to win favor, right? I was doing it because it made no sense to me that one person wants to change, 20 want to keep it the same. Why should we change, right? Why should we change? But that right there won me favor. I didn't even know it won me favor at the time, but it did. That won me favor. That won me favor with those people. So as we move on again, just make sure, you know, we're going to, a couple more suggestions here, but just make sure, right? Like, and, and I want to make sure that it hasn't like lost the point, right? Like we want to keep the locker room. We want to keep the people engaged. We want to keep the people that are actually doing the work, the ground pounders. It's, it's one of the, the quotes in the front of about face, right? When he writes the dedication to the book for people, right? Uh, David Hackworth, when he decides, like when he writes who the book is dedicated to, um, I'm trying to find it in the book rapidly while we're talking. He talks about who the book is really for, right? He talks about uh, why the book is really, uh, you know, who it's really for, who who he wrote the book for, and, and all of those things, right? Like, and it's not, uh, here it is, it's dedication to Steve Prezenka, who showed us how to soldier, to Henry DeBoer, who showed us how to die, to Glover Johns, who showed us how to lead, and to all the doughboys, the ground pounders, the grunts, the American infantrymen, past, present, and especially future, to them this book is dedicated. This is a book about leadership. This is a book about taking care of your people, not losing your locker room, right? And how to fix it. How to fix it if you are. And so we'll go back to the book here, just a few more excerpts. Um that I really want to talk about uh, before we end it for the for the episode. Let's make sure we keep our mission good, right? Like, let's make sure that, you know, here's an, a thing about accountability. An Army professional study, back to the book, Army professional study in 1984 yielded almost identical results to a similar study conducted in 1970, which pinpointed faked reports shoddy leadership, and self-promotion as responsible for eroding the basic values of the Army. The 1984 study actually gave senior officers even lower marks for competence and looking out for their subordinates than had the report of 14 years before. And half the officers questioned said that the bold or original creative officer cannot survive in today's Army. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'll be honest with you. That seems like every position today in the fire service, police, EMS, business, right? 
The only way you can be bold and creative today is if you start your own business. And in the fire service, that's pretty impossible, right? But it's true. The people that stick their necks out there for people, the bold, creative officers, the bold, creative officers, they can't survive today. They're the ones getting in trouble. They're the ones getting, you know, the the bold, like up and coming people. You know what happens? They get pissed off at their leadership and they go start a better company. That's what's happening in corporate America. That's why you're seeing just like all these companies sprout up. You're seeing all these things happen because of that. People are moving to these small conglomerates, right? Like they're leaving big organizations. Like let's look at ESPN for an example, right? Like they're the leader, worldwide leader in sports. Many successful people who are bold and creative and didn't want to be in that little bubble left and have started their own things and they're super successful. Look at, and again, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. WWF, WWE now is the leader in pro wrestling and has been for decades. There are people that hate that corporate structure and have gone out on their own. That's led to the creation of all elite wrestling. And that's led to some of the guys that were the best wrestlers in the world, top WWE stars making millions, leaving the best corporation, the biggest corporation, and going to this upstart because they want the challenge and they want to be creative. That's the only way to get it done these days, it seems. It seems if you're a, a, a guy who pushes the limits, and put, you know, that you're, that you're going to get just in trouble more than you're going to be successful. And a lot of times in the fire service or police, they go to a place that's, that's welcoming that. They leave the organization that they're in, even if it's better or higher paying, and they go to a, and they go to a different one because they don't. it's not necessarily about the money. It's about being challenged. And it's about being allowed to be the, who they want to be and be successful. And again, as we continue, the Army must insist, this is back to the book as well, the uh, the army must insist that its leaders be taught how to think from the moment they step on the first rung of the leadership ladder. They should be encouraged to become students of war with independent theories, biographies, and autobiographies of men such as Montgomery, Ridgway, Patton, and Rommel made required reading. Combat now and in the future will require leaders who are able to act independently and who are not afraid of taking risks. A knowledge of history and the ability to think and synthesize are the tools a warrior needs to confidently weigh upon the odds while working out the best course of action. The Army's current system of up and out must be abandoned. Not every man can be a general, nor does he want to be. And there is no reason why a good man cannot skipper a rifle company at the age of 45 or 50. The Army needs a flexible personnel system that concentrates on the man, not the computer printout. And it is time the Army seriously considered adopting the British system, which has a major commanding at the company level. I mean, that's a great place to end it. That's a great place to end it, and it's almost at the very end of it. Um, again, that's you know from About Face, uh, all from the epilogue chapter, which was, as David Hackworth wanted to write it, uh, as he wanted to write that, a a, and if you read the whole chapter, he talks about before that how uh, at the end of his military service when he was kind of like, you know, ostracized for speaking out and almost disciplined for speaking out, uh, 
that he waited to write some of those suggestions till later because he knew that anything he write or suggested would have an, a tinge of anger to it. And so he waited and he waited and then he finally like that was supposed to be like his message to to America, to the army, to the United States and to officers leadership of how they can fix it. His suggestions on how they could fix it from a guy who'd actually been there. And I think that's a great way to end it because that's exactly what we need to look forward to. It's talking fire service specific, but you know, organization specific as well, right? Worker satisfaction's down all over the country, no matter what your profession is, right? The people that are being successful allow creativity, they allow open forms of communication, they allow people to be themselves, they allow they allow leaders to be leaders. And they allow the flexibility for people to do the things that they need to do without repercussions. They have trust. They communicate. They don't lie. They're honest. And I think that's that's where we really need to be as a country, as 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 leaders in our organizations, you know, and it's not easy, right? It's it's not easy, but people can tell when you're not being genuine. And I've been accused many a times of being too honest, uh, you know, too too forthcoming with my opinion. And that's a fair assessment. But I can tell you that I don't hide it very well. So people know when you're not being authentic or people know when, when you know. So I'd rather be authentic than have to lie or to have to tell a half-truth. I'd rather be authentic and that's the thing too. One of the biggest things that you get every whenever someone does a survey, it's they want authentic leadership. Well, everybody wants authentic leadership till it's time to be authentic. Then they want you to whitewash the the truth. And so I hope as you've listened to this podcast, if you're a leader, if you're a fire chief or you're an executive, you're a CEO, you're a CFO, you're a police chief, you're you're an EMS director, uh you know, you maybe you're in the army. I hope you You've re- listened to some of these pitfalls that the military has has fallen into, and some of the and take them as suggestions and things that you can do in your organization, whatever that is, to avoid them. If you're a company officer, I hope you have figured out and gotten some suggestions and listened to how to lead better at the company level, how to gain trust in your subordinates, even maybe how to lead up a little. And that's tough. Um, I wrote an article on the blog years ago called "Leading from the Middle." And it was one of the toughest things, and it still is tough, right? It's one of the toughest things you ha- you do. But at some point, everybody is kind of leading from the middle because everybody has a boss, right? Everybody has a boss. We're all leading from the middle at some level. And leading from the middle is one of the toughest things you're ever going to have to do. You're trying to bring people up, and you're trying to lead forward for the people that are above you. You're trying to, you're trying to and I don't want to use the word influence, but we're trying to push things in the right direction. But it's all for to keep the people, the troops, the doughboys, the ground pounders, the infantry people, the riflemen, the firefighter, the police officer, the budget analyst. It's all to keep them inspired moving forward because they're the ones that are really accomplishing the mission. They're the ones that are really accomplishing the mission. I say this all the time when I teach in... uh, acting officer school, that you can have the best, and I use fire department because we're in a fire department setting, but you can have the best chief in the world. 
You can have the best chief in the world, like highly decorated, you know, like all this stuff. If you don't have good company level leadership and you don't have good firefighters, then your fire department sucks. And what makes good firefighters is good company level leadership. But they won't do anything if you lose them. If they can't trust you, if you don't communicate with them, anything like that. If you don't, if you don't train them right, you don't prepare them for their true job, then we're never going to accomplish the mission. We're never going to move forward as an organization. And we fail. And in corporate America, maybe that's not as important, right? Like failure looks different in corporate America. But in public safety, in fire, EMS, police, military, failure could mean death of people or workers, right? Of firefighters or citizens, of police officers or citizens, right? And that's unacceptable. And I'm not saying I've got it all figured out. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'll probably screw up tomorrow. But I hope that you can take some of these things, that some of the things that have inspired me and a book that was a, that's been a huge inspiration to me uh, and take some of the suggestions. And there's so much more in it than just that last chapter. There's so much more in it. I mean, there. this is a leadership book that's not meant to be a leadership book, but it really is. It is about... <clears throat> leading people. It is about accomplishing the mission. It's about taking care of people. And it's about trying to move whatever you're doing, whether it be an army platoon, a brigade, a fire department, a police department, a corporation. It's about trying to take those things and move them forward and accomplish your mission. And you're never going to do that if you don't have the trust of your locker room. Don't be like some of these guys. Don't be like Urban Meyer where he doesn't tell the team that he's going to stay behind. He doesn't travel with the team. He doesn't get in the trenches with the team. He doesn't have their trust. He doesn't communicate. And he does shady things that the team doesn't buy into. Going all the way back to the beginning of the episode. Don't do those things. Be more like David Hackworth. He was a rebel. He was a maverick. He did things his way, and he'll even tell you that he didn't do all... He talks about his shortcomings in the book as well, about his adultery, about how he kind of bypassed the rules sometimes to get things accomplished. But at the end of the day, he, he only did those things, talking about breaking the rules, for the people. And I'm not encouraging you to be a rule breaker, but if we're trying to put our people first, and that doesn't look always like giving them everything they want, uh... One of the things I use all the time, my parents made me eat my vegetables even though I didn't want to because I needed them. Sometimes what your people need is a firm hand. Sometimes what they need is a hug. Sometimes what they need is more training. But if you're putting your people first, you're putting the people on the ground first with every decision you make. If you're putting them first, you're going to keep that locker and you're communicating with them and you're building their trust. They're going to move mountains for you. But if you lie to them, you're secretive, deceitful, don't communicate with them, don't tell them what's going on, have yourself in mind all the time, looking to punch your ticket to get to the top, you're not going to accomplish very much. You're not going to be able to move your mission forward. And so that's kind of where I want to end it today. 
it's kind of where I want to end the podcast today with the main topic of uh, how not to lose your locker room or what happens when the coach loses the locker room. Remember, like we said at the very beginning of the podcast, it's about two choices. Most teams where their coach loses the locker room or their leader loses the locker room, they uh, the first choice they have, they usually stop working. They wait around for another leader, and hopefully he's better and, and inspires them and, and helps them. The other option is they win despite the leader. And I hope that I've given you some inspiration today that if you're in a poor leadership situation, that you win despite your leader. You pull yourself up, and you're not going to have perfect days. I don't have perfect days. But you pull yourself up, and you win, especially if you're in public safety, because that's what the citizens need. That's what we got into this job to do. We got in this job to win. We didn't get into this job to suck. We got in this job to win. And so I hope you can take some of those lessons from Hackworth and win, whether you have good leadership or not. And that could be from the firefighter level, the company officer level, the battalion level, whatever. And it's risky. You may get some flack for it. But I can tell you, with some personal experience, you'll be able to look at yourself in the mirror. And that's the most important thing. So with that being said, I can't do what I do without the support of some just phenomenal, phenomenal people and companies. Uh, The first, the Fireground Commander Conference. We just finished the Fireground Commander Conference. We just finished it. Um, But uh, we're coming back because uh, we originally, the Fireground Commander Conference was... uh, a March thing. We had to move it back because of COVID. We had to move it back because of COVID. And uh, so now we're trying to get back to March, but March was way too soon to uh, to bring, to bring uh, the conference back, right? So uh, we decided as a group that we're going to bring the conference back in May. And I know it's a short turnaround. I know it's a short turnaround for a lot of people. Uh, But we're going to bring this conference, the Fireground Commander Conference, one of the best conferences in Virginia, and I think one of the best conferences in the country at this point. We've been able to be so successful. We've been able to accomplish our mission. So this year's Fireground Commander Conference is going to be May 23rd through the 25th, 2022. Same great venue, the Henrico Theater in Henrico County, Virginia. And listen to this lineup. I was super jazzed about last year's lineup. This year's lineup, man, I think, not to say anything bad about last year's lineup, because, man, it was so awesome. I enjoyed going to to dinner with those guys, and just, you know, Mark Von Oppen was great, and Frank, and and uh, all these people, right, like Ryan Pennington, and, and Eric Wheaton, and Ben Schultz, and William Knight, and Doug, uh, Doug Mitchell, and Dan Shaw, uh, like all these people, they were just so great. But uh, I think this lineup is going to rival that, if not, be better. Fireground Commander Conference 2022 lineup Monday. Frank Viscuso talking about step up and lead. Jason Patton and Dina Ali on Monday as well. Tuesday, May 24th, Jonah Smith and Jonathan Brumley. Jonas, Jonah Smith coming back to the conference for a second go-round. And ending Tuesday with Bill Gustin from Miami-Dade, who is an engine hero of mine. I basically I like everything that guy does. Um... Wednesday, part two 
of Bill Gustin. And then ending the conference with James Johnson talking about building construction and Basil Ibrahim talking about, I believe his class is going to be on rapid intervention stuff. Ridiculous lineup again. Ridiculous lineup again. Um, However, the early birds are already sold out. If you weren't on the email list or you weren't uh, at the conference on the very last day, you didn't get the info because we try to, you know, take care of the people that continually come to the conference and stay to the end. So the $99 spots are all gone. If you want to come to that awesome lineup for still, in my opinion, the absolute best price in the country, $175. All those speakers I just mentioned, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight speakers, eight speakers at an FDIC level for $175 with snacks provided, lunch provided, all three days, a great venue in the Henrico Theater. A great venue in the Henrico Theater. Go to embracetheresistance.com, click on the conference tab, and get signed up today. I can tell you right now, we are all ready. The early birds are already sold out. The $175 registrations are flying off. We have about, I think, $150. I'm checking actually right now live. There's only 136 remaining. We started with 150 at the $175 spots. The price will go, once those are sold out, the price for the full conference will go to $250. And when those are gone, it's sold out. So don't wait. Plan to join us at, again, going to be our best conference yet. I can't believe uh, that I think, you know, we're going to continue to keep getting better and better and better. So come to our, our the next Fireground Commander Conference. Again, the dates are May 23rd through the 25th, 2022 at the Henrico Theater. Go to embracetheresistance.com, click on the conference tab, and you'll get all the information you need. Also, Vanguard Safety Wear, makers of the MK1 Fire Glove, the MK1 Ultra, the Squad 1, those things are made for work. I wear them every day. People comment on them all the time. People try them on, talk about the dexterity of them, talk about the durability of them. I'm telling you, I wear them all the time. I stretch hose in them all the time. I'm a big fire glove guy. think you should do fire ground work in fire gloves. They're awesome. Go to vanguardsafetywear.com or dingusfire.com to get you a pair of MK1, MK1 Ultras, Squad 1s, and just all the great stuff that they have coming out of Vanguard Safety Wear. Vanguard Safety Wear, made for work. Taylor's Tins. Taylor's Tins makes metal helmet fronts, metal tags, metal everything. If you want something made out of metal, Garen Dagon T. Taylor's Tins is going to make that happen for you. Go to taylorstins.com. That's taylorstins.com. And see what they've got for sale. See what they can offer you. It's not going to be just some fly-by-night drop-down menu where you pick and pick. No. You're going to tell Taylor what you want. He is going to give you some custom art, and he's going to be able to do it for you. Okay? So taylorstins.com. Stop burning up leathers. Start wearing Taylor's Tins. And lastly, uh... IDLH Technology, tacticalworksheet.com. They make the absolute best freaking command board out there. I love it. I use it every time I ride up on the car. I have some of their mini command boards that I keep in my pocket just in case I have to be a group or division supervisor or go up, you know, or like, or get in charge of an area that I can keep track of people. They're durable. They're great. They lay out a command board the way that I think it should be laid out. They lay it out the way that my brain works and they make it just so easy, so simple. Uh, He just put on his... uh, Instagram the other day that he used his IDLH command board 
to command an incident with 80 companies. 80 companies with this little command board. It's awesome. It's great. I can tell you what, like I use it all the time. I love it. Um, I know people that have seen it and that have seen it and bought it. Um, so it's great. I like to command from the car. It's awesome. It's portable. It's great. Uh, I can't say enough about it. Go to, uh, technology.com or tacticalworksheet.com and get you one of their great, great, great command boards. They're awesome. And lastly, you know what we do. Make sure you're spending one hour a day in the library reading something about our job. Watch a YouTube video. Do something to educate yourself about our profession. Make sure you're spending one hour in the gym. Getting that hour of physical fitness in so that you have the physical capabilities to do the tough job that we face. And make sure you're spending one hour a day hands-on training. Putting your hands on the tools we need to do our job effectively. It doesn't have to be anything sexy. Last day that I worked, we had a new way we're packing the 400 foot line. And all we did for, we did it actually for two hours. We just stretched and packed the 400 foot line. And we got sets and reps on a needed thing for the company that I was working at the other day. Sets and reps packing it, sets and reps pulling it, even some different ways to pull it so it could be better for different firefighters. It was nothing sexy. It wasn't even anything hard, but it was valuable. It was critical. So make sure you're spending one hour a day doing that. You do that. You'll become a pretty phenomenal firefighter. I guarantee it. Thanks for listening. Stay aggressive. Don't lose the locker room. Stay safe. I'm out.